This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts, my Usual co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, is not able to be with us today. Uh, today we're going to talk about the latest AMLAW 100. The results are just in, and they show that the nation's uh, top-grossing lar- large law firms have just finished the best five-year run uh, since the American Lawyer magazine started keeping records. Uh, it is indeed a, a golden age uh, for law firms, or at least has been, with uh, total revenues reaching uh, nearly $65 billion. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about the AMLAW 100, a little bit about uh, what goes into it, what it all means. And uh, to help us do that, we're going to have two guests. Uh, joining us, first of all, today is the editor-in-chief of the American Lawyer magazine, uh, Eric Press. Eric became uh, editorial director for ALM and editor-in-chief of the magazine in 1998. Uh, He joined ALM from Newsweek, where uh, he had been uh, a senior editor there covering a wide range of subjects from uh, news media to law to cancer research. Um, before becoming an editor at Newsweek, he was its justice writer for nine years. Welcome to the show, Eric Press. Thank you, Bob. And also joining us today is Bruce McEwen. Uh, Bruce is a lawyer and a consultant to law firms on strategic and economic issues. He is the founder and publisher of the blog Adam Smith Esquire, which uh, generates a third of a million page views per month, providing insights on the business of large, sophisticated law firms. He's published uh, nearly 900 articles on Adam Smith Esquire on the economics of law firms, covering such topics as strategy, leadership, globalization, mergers and acquisitions, finance, compensation, and cultural considerations and partnership structures. And uh, he's been looking at the, the AMLAW 100 numbers. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So welcome to the show, Bruce. My pleasure to be here. Uh, Eric, let's uh, start with you. Uh, you have uh, – c- congratulations, by the way, on, on reaching 10 years with, with ALM. Uh, and, and you've been, uh, I guess, at the helm uh, at least uh, of the publication of this survey for, uh, for 10 years now. Uh, what strikes you? What stands out to you about this year's results? Well, the the AMLAW 100 firms had another very strong year, um, uh, which is, I guess, old news, at, 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 or at least familiar news, at at, at this point. Uh, so strong that that the two firms, uh, Skadden Arps and Latham and Watkins, uh, each broke the two billion dollar barrier. So we're beginning to look at organizations that uh, are global in nature with top lines that are reasonably uh, substantial. What, um, what, what, what struck our, our, our people here uh, was the question, because of course we're, we're journalists and always looking a little bit for the, 
for the next story it, of whether this uh, this great run is about to slow down a, a, a bit. Everyone's familiar with the economic uh, issues facing the country, and the law firms um, may not be immune to them. Well, did you find any evidence to tell you one way or the other how that might go? Well, uh, some of it is uh, is anecdotal. The uh, deal activity, which uh, floated so many uh, corporate departments for the last several years, uh, has at the very least slowed uh, where where it hasn't stopped. And the classic uh, counter-cyclical practices, litigation and and bankruptcy uh, have not yet kicked in across the board to to, to help all all hundred firms. Also, we we found a, a structural I- indicator uh, that, that that points uh, a bit to weakness. I, I, I hate to sound like a, a stock analyst, but I, I guess that's that's what it is. For the first time since the bust of two thousand one of that bust of blessed memory, the growth in headcount uh, of, of the law firms last year noticeably exceeded the growth in in revenue per lawyer. Uh, we think that may be a leading indicator that the uh, the, the record run of, of uh, five consecutive years of better than average growth in revenue per lawyer and profits per partner may be over. And, and you talked uh, in your introduction um, uh, to the survey uh, about those numbers, about revenue per partner and profits per partner, and, and uh, you, you indicated that it's that that later metric uh, that that's the one that uh, perhaps drives firms a, a bit crazy. Uh, what uh, were, were there any significant trends uh, there with respect to revenues and profits per partner? Well, there there are now um, there are now nineteen firms that have profits per partner of. Two million dollars or or more, for more than there were in uh, in in 2006. The average was a little bit better than 1.3 uh, million, which means there are a handful of of firms in the country um, with profits for partner of a million bucks who who still are performing below the average of their uh, of of their peers. Um, the second thing that, that that's happening, and, and I suspect you want to discuss this with with Bruce as well. I had an interesting post about this. Is that one way to maintain uh, high average profits per partner is by uh, keeping the size of the partnership uh, flat, or or even um, uh, cutting them. Uh, but by, by our numbers, uh, the average. Uh, the average equity partnership at the MY100 firms grew by only 2.6% last year, or almost five five partners. But five was a pretty big number because 37 firms actually had smaller equity partnerships year over year, and four held them flat. So there's not a great – in a lot of law firms, there simply aren't very many new equity partners being made, instead this new category, or that's not new, but more used category of non-equity partners, which is really relevant only internally to the outside world of partners, a partner, but the the non-equity partner category is growing much faster. 
Well, Bruce McEwen, as, as Eric uh, suggested, you've addressed this issue on your blog. You spent some time going through the numbers of this year's survey and some of the some of the prior years. Uh, what did you find? Well, there are there are certainly any number of, of angles you could you could come at it from. Um, and I, uh, I have to thank Eric and his crew for putting together a lot of uh, a lot of data. But one of the things that I looked at um, is historically, and I'll get to revenue per lawyer and profits per partner in a second, but historically I went back 10 years and looked at the composition of the top 25 firms, and in particular, um, I started by looking at where they were from. And 10 years ago, uh, 11 of the 25, or almost half, uh, were New York headquartered firms. Um, today, that's down to just seven or about a third. Um, California had five firms both times. Uh, Texas had a couple. Chicago had four or five. But the big change um, from 10 years ago to today is the number of firms that were not from any of those major markets. Uh, in 1996, there was only one firm in the top 25 that didn't come from New York, California, or Chicago. And uh, this year, there are eight. So this says to me that these regional um, firms are um, actually uh, assaulting the major financial uh, marketplaces fairly successfully, and they are uh, climbing up the ladder. Doesn't that go against the conventional wisdom to some extent? I mean, there seems to be this feeling that if you're not a New York firm, you're ne- you're never going to, uh, you know, fully make it. I, th- I think what's going on is um, the New York firms. I don't want to say they've been standing still because they haven't, but they haven't not. They've not been growing as aggressively outside New York as the firms that started outside New York have been growing in New York. And, of course, London and, and places like that, that's another uh, tremendous trend. Uh, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, very, very few of the lawyers in these firms were actually posted abroad, and today it's about uh, 16 or 17% of these lawyers are not uh, in the U.S., actually. Eric, did you just want to chime in on that point before we move on? Or? Well, I was just—I mean, I'm very interested in your in, in, in your point, Bruce, particularly as you're looking at the at the top line, the gross revenues. You're you're absolutely correct, but when you look at the the other columns, revenue per lawyer and profits per partner, I think that the New York firms or those outside firms, a handful of them with substantial New York operations, are we continue to to head the list. Don't you think that they do? They do, and that's um, that is absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems that the the New York firms have is, to the extent they expand outside New York, it's going to dilute their revenue per lawyer and, and profits per partner number, and and that is um, that's been true for a decade, and it's and it's probably going to be true, basically as far as the eye can see. Um, London being an exception, you can go to London without diluting things. So, Bruce, talk about you. Not to cut you off in that, but you also looked. Uh, you looked at some other factors. One of which was uh, the, the tiering of the firm. Uh, whether whether a firm has multiple tiers and, and what impact that has. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, this is something that's probably you, you said counterintuitive. This is something that 
probably something that's very counterintuitive to most people because for the last 20 years, basically the AMLAW 100 firms have been, have been advised by a bunch of consultants to to move to a two-tier partnership system, the second tier being so-called non-equity partners. And the uh, rationale that's, that has been advanced was always, you know, you can keep productive people, they won't be as expensive as equity partners, um, you'll increase your leverage and you'll increase your profitability and so forth. And I decided to just actually take a look, you know, what does is, what is the data say? And what I discovered um, is that if you're interested in profitability, going two-tier is one of the stupidest things you can do. Now, there may be cultural reasons you want to you want to have non-equity partners, you know, retaining valuable people, uh, an alternative career path, stuff like that. But if you're looking at it simply to increase your um, your profits or your revenue per lawyer, uh, there are strong and statistically significant negative correlations between the proportion of non-equity partners and revenue per lawyer, your profit margin and profits per partner. In other words, the more non-equity partners you have, the lower all of those measures of performance are. And I just took a look at uh, firms that had no non-equity partners. Those tend to be New York firms, to Eric's point. And their average revenue per lawyer, this is 20 firms. There are only 20 out of the 100. They're still single tier. Their average revenue per lawyer was... Uh, over a million one hundred thousand dollars for firms that have twenty six for firms that have where the equity non equity partners number a quarter the ranks of the equity partners or higher um, the revenue per lawyer was about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in all those cases so that's a huge difference and because revenue per lawyer and profits per partner are very highly correlated nearly a ninety percent correlation. Um, these firms are shooting themselves in the foot um, by having non-equity partners. Do you, can you explain that correlation? Why do you think it's happening that way? Well, I, I think there are two reasons. There's, a, there's sort of a cultural one, but then there's a, there's a very clear arithmetic one. The, the cultural one is, um, I think, going to a non-equity uh, structure changes the gene pool, if you will, of the kind of candidates you attract. Because if, if you get out of law school and you go to a single-tier partnership of, you know, one of the typical, you know, Wall Street firms, you know that it's sink or swim. I mean, you're going to, you're either going to win this tournament or you're going to be out of the firm. And that tends to attract the most uh, extreme, you know, sort of type A uh, competitive people. If you go to a two-tier firm out of law school or laterally, you know, in your you know, in your heart of hearts, that there's another option. You don't maybe have to completely beat your brains out. You could hang around for a long time, uh, making a very nice salary, and not have to kill yourself. So I think it changes the gene pool, as I say. Then the arithmetic part is is a lot simpler. Um, as firms, as as more and more firms have introduced the non-equity tier, surprise. The, the number of people in that tier has grown to the point where um, in 2006, across the AMLAW 100, fully a quarter of the non-partners were non-equity partners. Um, only three-quarters of them were associates. 
And those people, remember, are much more expensive than associates. They're earning they're earning pretty big bucks. Certainly, to the man on the street, they're 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 earning big bucks. Now, here's the real problem. Not only are they expensive, they're less productive than associates, and they're less productive even than equity partners. Uh, in terms of hours billed per year, they're about 250 hours a year less than associates or equity partners. And that's that may not sound like so much when people are billing 1,700 or 1,800 hours a year, but it, it turns out it, it really kills um, the profitability of those people. Eric, in, in the uh, in the package of stories that uh, accompany the this year's report, uh, there, there's one that that talks about the tendency uh, within fir- among firms to to tear up, as as they put it, to uh, create uh, not just non equity tiers, but but staff hire staff attorneys at at uh, according to the article half the cost of uh, of associates. Uh, is that a response to the kind of uh, trend that, that Bruce is talking about, or what do you, what do you think is driving that? Well, I think one of the things that's, that, that's driving it is um, uh, some reluctance on the part of clients to pay uh, premium uh, premium rates for work that may, may be difficult, may be tedious, but doesn't necessarily require a future partner or someone who's on a partner partner track. So I, I w- first, I would say, would be clients. Second would be internal morale. Um, you know, if, 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 you ask, if you ask the MLO 100, they, they only recruit from Yale and Harvard, and they only recruit the, the, the presidents of the law review, except, except when they end up being candidates for the Senate. And as a result, those folks are unlikely to want to spend their time, at least for very long, or at least not one day longer than it takes them to pay off their student loan, doing a document review uh, in, a, in a windowless uh, in a windowless cubicle on the third floor of a building in Hoboken. So, by by hiring staff lawyers, paying them uh, decently by any reasonable standard, and and shunting the work off to them, you can both. Uh, have a more attractive bill for your client, and not and have to come up with other methods of uh, morale busting for your highly talented, thoroughbred associates. Uh, the law firms, uh, thankfully, I think, are are attempting to experiment with a variety of new approaches, and we're just at the beginning of of, of their experimental. Stages and, and using staff lawyers is uh, is one of them. I was uh, looking at uh, articles on law.com where, where we can see uh, which have been the most most emailed or most popular among them, and, and it seems that the one that's uh, generating the most readership uh, uh, is talking about the law firm Heller Ehrman and what's going on there. Uh, posing the question: uh, uh, Can management end the pain? Uh, what's what's the answer? What's what's going on there? What's what's the response? Well, Heller is a, is 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 a very fine law firm um, headquartered in 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 San Francisco, but with offices around the country. With a uh, what I think is a strong and and positive positive culture, and and they've they've hit some um, speed bumps. They they're they're. Ex- Expansion into a couple of cities, including New York, hasn't 
worked out as well as they had hoped, but they're hardly they're they're hardly alone in that. They've tried to organize themselves into a somewhat more bottom line oriented uh, uh, organization, and in the process have uh, lost uh, several uh, substantial uh, lawyers who left carrying their their practices uh, with them. Um, they're going through this uh, through through uh, through through a rough patch, which I'm uh, confident that they'll that they'll survive. Uh, although there are lots of, there's lots of talk on the street about whether they're talking with this firm or that firm about a potential merger or link up, and no doubt there are conversations going on. If if, if I had a you know if I had a thousand dollars for every for every consultant who's told me about an imminent Link up transformational merger of one firm or another. I might be closer to having a retirement staff. <laughs> I would I would chime in that I think this is actually just a, a a very small piece of the much larger picture, which is law firms. I think realize for the maybe for the first time in their lives that this is an era of of unprecedented change, and the famous crevasse model that's been around for ninety years just is. Getting just showing incredible signs of stress and strain, and I think it's going to break down. Now, what the firms of the future will look like, and, and they will be, by and large, firms from the AMLAW 100. I mean, we're not going to see a new set of players arise. Um, but how, exactly what they will look like will be uh, is, is still very much up in the air. And to Eric's point, firms are experimenting. I mean, you know, this is. This is kind of like, uh, you know, evolution. We're, we're not quite sure what's going to work, but we're going to try a few things. And those things include alternate career paths. As, as, you know, Eric was talking about staff attorneys, uh, maybe timeouts for people to um, pursue radical things like starting a family, um, you know, alternative billing arrangements. I think we may finally see not the death, but the diminution of the billable hour. Um, and I think that um, we're also going to see an increased use of uh, kind of business-like approaches to managing cases and staffing them along the lines of what any project manager in a Fortune 500 firm would, um, would be familiar with. Well, speaking of timeouts, we are going to take a brief timeout right now to uh, hear a few words from our commercial sponsors, and we will be right back. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. J. Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleaseTheCourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. 
We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away this week. We are talking about the latest AMLAW 100 with Eric Press, the editor-in-chief of the American Lawyer magazine and editorial director of ALM, and Bruce McEwen, uh, lawyer, consultant, and author of the blog Adam Smith Esquire. Bruce, I, I just wanted to ask you uh, whether there was anything else that you had found in, in, in your number crunching so far that, that stood out to you uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Well, yeah, one of the things um, that I that is a, seems to be a pretty clear trend now, and, and I don't see it changing. In fact, I see it accelerating, is the firms at the top of the heap are pulling away from the rest. And just to quantify this, um, Ten years ago, the um, revenue per the ratio of revenue per lawyer, the the uh, highest firm to score on that uh, on that scale, which is Wachtell, and today it's still Wachtell. <laughs> the ratio of their revenue per lawyer to the lowest firm was about four to one. Um, today it's over six to one. And similarly, on profits per partner, ten years ago that ratio was about nine to one. Today it's over 12 to 1. And to me, that's pretty hard uh, evidence that um, that the top firms are pulling away. Eric, uh, one of the uh, pieces that accompanies your survey uh, is uh, uh, looks tries to look ahead a little bit uh, and, and sees uh, annual revenues uh, surpassing $5 billion, uh, not too far down the road, uh, was there anything about those predictions that that struck you uh, as as worthy uh, that really stood out about that? Well, th- th- this was a this was a piece from uh, a Peter Scherer, a business school professor at the University of of, of Calgary, who I, I assume during the long winter nights up there <laughs> um, plays with our numbers. And he uh, he came up with this set of uh, startling projections um, based on uh, you know the past is prologue, taking the compound average growth rates uh, of, of 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 the M- forty seven of the M fifty firms starting in nineteen eighty four through today, and then projecting at the same rates going going forward. And they're very you know they're very interesting. Uh, uh, numbers uh, for 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 tavern talk, and they're absolutely as guaranteed as the as the statement that Alex Rodriguez will will set the new home run uh, home run record in 2015. Well, I mean, is that I mean, he's you're right. He went back to I, I think all the way back to 1985 and and tracked the numbers forward from there sure. and and looked for trends in those numbers and. Uh, 
you know, he's, he predicted uh, that the Scat and Arps and uh, in, in, uh, uh, Latham and Watkins would, would both gross more than $5 billion. Baker and McKenzie would have more than 6,600 lawyers. And uh, Wachtell Partners would bring in uh, $7.7 million apiece. Uh, you right. know, it, it, that'll only buy you a one-bedroom in Manhattan. <laughs> at that point. But the broader point was, I mean, which is, I think, what you're driving at, Bob, that is this possible? I mean, is it is it possible that law firms will continue to to grow at at, 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 at these rates? And, and he raised a number of very interesting questions. Among them, will will the demand continue to to expand? Where in the world will firms find the lawyers that will allow them to continue to grow. And it's not an idle remark, where in the world? I mean, I remember during the great rush at the end of the 90s where any any law student with a graduating law student with a pulse could get a job in the AMLAW 100. And if you were there a year and working on the West Coast, you could be put in charge of a deal. There was recruiting going on all over the English-speaking world, except for India. And that's now, of course, a, a, a market that produces as many, as many lawyers as uh, the United States, and the barriers uh, there are coming down rapidly. So there'll be not only globalization of offices, there'll be globalization of recruiting. How will the firms manage the complexities of being a multi-thousand, multi-continent uh, or, or organization that's still organized around uh, a, a partnership agreement. Um, very hard to very hard to see how the present model grows uh, the, the, the the way um, it continues the same as it as it grows to that level. There's already stresses and strains, uh, as, as Bruce was alluding to earlier, in these um, tri continental places they simply can't be run look if, if if you need a name tag at your partners meeting you can't run it as a partnership and once you run it as a business organization not just as a business but as a business organization the nature of of, of who you are and your relationship to the organization has changed and we're just at the beginning of understanding what that's going to mean and yet the the firms that that stay at the top of the list that that are at the top of the list this year have have been there for some time i mean there there's not a lot of uh change in, in that uh, in that top tier scenario uh, at least in in recent history uh, i mean bruce what's your impression on that well actually my my take on that i, I did a i did a chart tracking the changes in the in the top 25 over the last 10 years and there there have been some significant some significant movements if not absolute changes i mean we have we have a few you know completely new arrivals um you know like dla and greenberg traurig uh this is the top 25 not the top 10 um you know reed smith um deckert uh Firms that that were, were nowhere um, ten years ago, and then we also have some real name brands that that you know are kind of falling, uh, kind of falling stars. Um, you know, Davis Polk is just barely hanging on in the top twenty-five anymore. Um, Aiken Gump, Deborah Voice, Fulbright, and Jaworski. Uh, you know, even uh, Cravath is not in the top. 
top 25 anymore. They're down to number 43. So there are changes. And, you know, I would invite um, people to look at, you know, say changes in the Fortune 500, <laughs> the top 25 or 30 firms. You know, in the space of 10 or 20 years, it becomes almost unrecognizable. And I'm not saying that uh, change will be that fast in, in law firm land because it's a much more insular and conservative industry, but um, you do see the results of strategy over time um, having an impact. We are uh, about at the end of our time. Before we do that, I want to give each of you an opportunity to, to close with any final thoughts you have. So, uh, Eric Press, let me ask you first to uh, wrap up this discussion of the AM Law 100. Uh, the, the only thing I would add to what, 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 what Bruce just, just noted is that on the revenue and, 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 and profit charts, there, there isn't very much change, revenue per lawyer charts, but there is a, occasional change. There's still room for a new idea. You take someone, a firm like the Quinn Emanuel firm, which essentially didn't exist 10 years ago, certainly wasn't on any of our, any of our charts, and now ranks in the top quintile on both profitability and revenue per lawyer by building itself as a national and then now international high-end litigation shop. So there's room still for uh, a fast-moving innovator who speaks to a need in the market that the client feels is is necessary and um, is, isn't isn't being adequately served. Those niches are are very hard to find. Bruce McEwen, uh, your closing thoughts on this? Well, I would I would absolutely concur with Eric's observation that what I call the performance-related numbers, revenue per lawyer and profits per partner, do change much more slowly than gross revenue, which after all, you know, you merge a couple of firms and you, <laughs> your gross revenue goes through the ceiling, uh, and that's not all that hard to do. But I think the, the key to what Eric said is... And what I what I tell my clients is that there there has to be a strategy that is distinctive to your firm that's really going to provide uh, value that will keep your clients close close close, and those are hard to find. And Bruce, I think one of your non-equity partners just weighed in there in the background. Yeah. Uh, the well, thank you very much to uh, both of you. We appreciate your taking the time to be on the program. Uh, Eric Press is the editor in chief of the American Lawyer Magazine. You can find all about the AMLA 100 at AmericanLawyer.com. And uh, Bruce McEwen uh, is author of the blog Adam Smith Esquire. And uh, you can find out all about Bruce and read his writings at AdamSmithEsquire.com. And, uh, of course, all of our programs are available at TheLegalTalkNetwork.com and also in the podcast library on iTunes. Thanks a lot to both of you for your time today. You're welcome. Pleasure, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on The Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.